But thanks so much for coming back. If you can see the screen, great. We're going to look at pictures again today. Welcome to those of you who weren't uh, here yesterday. We're going to look at some pictures like we did. And if you, so there's a lot of room up front. If you want to, uh, if you need to hang in the back for a quick exit, that's fine. But uh, there's plenty of room up front to see the pictures. You know, the first time uh, I presented in Stoffer a number of years ago, there wasn't any of this. And I said, well, there's some visuals. And they said, that's no problem. We can handle that. And what they had, this was many years ago, was a TV stand, like one of those mobile carts and the TV screen that was, you know, about this big. I thought, oh, that's not very good. And, and everyone who came said, that wasn't very good. Um, so I, I ditched the, the images on the, the second day. But we're going to keep up with images here. They've got these, this much larger screen. Um, I, I want to, if, if you do want to move up, please do. I want to tell you a story about Amy Carmichael, who's a missionary in India in the early 20th century. And she had uh, uh, a, a girl that she was working with named Trina. Um, and Trina became a Christian and uh, lived in the orphanage there where Miss Carmichael was. And she wanted to know what Jesus looked like. Uh, so Miss Carmichael prayed that God would reveal Jesus to the girl in the orphanage. For uh, only the divine can show the divine, she said. And one day, Trina got a packet from abroad, very exciting, full of goodies and stuff, but it also included this portrait of a man. And so she pulls up this up and says, well, who is this? And they say, well, that's Jesus. And Trina bursts into tears. And they say, what? What's wrong? Why are you crying? This is Jesus. Um, and she said... I thought he was far more beautiful than that. Very upset. Now, I, I don't know what Prina had in mind. I don't know if when Prina was thinking about Jesus or the Jesus that God had revealed to her heart before she saw any pictures uh, was something that she could relate to out of her own culture, like you see in this image. Or maybe... She had something else totally in mind, something transcendent, resplendent, that wasn't realistic at all. But one thing was for sure, she could not connect very well to that Western picture of Jesus that someone, probably with very good intentions, sent her. In this class, we've been talking about images of Jesus. And it's not really about pictures, actually, although it seems like it is, because I'm showing lots of pictures. The, the pictures help us talk about these things, help us reflect on they give us sort of books for uh, what we're thinking about because uh, we're not just talking about pictures, certainly not an art history class, but um, we're also talking about the images that we have in our mind, the images we have in our heart, the images that get painted by our worship language and uh, by our preaching. Uh, the pictures that are visual graphic pictures help us kind of relate and talk about that. But there are songs that we hear that paint pictures of Jesus. And uh, I want to start again with an engaging audiovisual extravaganza, a little clip. I'm not going to play the whole uh, song for you. Sorry, Mark. Mark, Mark requested we play the whole song, but uh, 
not going to do that, just to give you a sense of how, this is not a picture of Jesus visually, but it's a song that uh, paints a particular portrait of Jesus. I want to say I'm actually not trying to criticize Life Kids music, and I'm certainly not trying to criticize the value of seeing Jesus as a as, as a fun, warm, personal companion. Um, early faith is a precious thing, and the images that form it are precious, and God works through them in mysterious ways. I think that being discerning involves appreciating that, and that's really the aim of these classes: is to sharpen our our discernment. Um, but I will also say <laughs> that uh, there are children and youth for whom this kind of thing is, you know, particularly packaged, who if this is it, if this is the diet of Jesus, they get. See, I get them in college. <laughs> and, and they, uh, by the time they're 15, 16, depending on personality and experience, sometimes they're sort of done with Jesus and Christianity. But it's not really Jesus they've rejected. <laughs> It's a particular image, and sometimes a very narrow image of Jesus. Uh, one that's not really, doesn't hold a lot of promise out for solving the world's problems, for example, right? And uh, that becomes a difficulty for them, an impediment for them, because the menu is not as broad, not as healthy as it could be. Yesterday, just to recap quickly, we dashed through this gallery of images from the history of the Christian imagination with Jesus as the Jewish rabbi, or the, infer, uh, the uh, images of comfort and salvation and care that we find in early Christianity with the Good Shepherd. We talked about the king of Christendom and uh, how that became a significant and popular image, especially in the Roman Empire, but also Jesus as the image of God and as the cosmic Lord. We talked about the influence of the image of Jesus as the suffering Savior and the Son of Man who uh, exposes sin but also connects, identifies with the suffering of people in the world. We talked about Jesus as the judge and a reformer and the significance of this image. And with that, we also talked about Jesus as a liberator. We talked about a really popular one, especially in the modern period, with Jesus uh, as a personal beloved. And the, it, my BFF sort of fits in that, you know, as a subcategory. Um, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux might talk about the bridegroom of the soul. Uh, the song talked about Jesus as my BFF. They're a little different, but they're in the same broad sort of category. And we talked about the ideal man 
of the Renaissance and especially the Enlightenment and Jesus as every person. And we talked about uh, the global Christ uh, who transcends ethnicity and location in a way, but in a way is very local and reminds us of the universality of Jesus. And we talked about how that all of these images come from biblical roots and they come from the, the bedrock foundations of Christian teaching. Uh, but we picked up some lessons along the way from this gallery. First of all, that the embodied Jesus, the historical Jesus, that literal historical first century person is always very important and someone to keep coming back to over and over again. That the, our images of Jesus, whether we're talking about a picture on a wall or in our children's Bible or the picture in our minds or the pictures that our songs uh, depict, that they, they don't tell scripture, they interpret scripture. They, don't, they, they tell about the faith. And uh, that's an important distinction to keep in mind. Our images of Jesus have power because of their symbolic meaning. There's always something under the surface to think about and to reflect on, and that's the, the power uh, that those images have. They respond to circumstances, and uh, they reflect contexts. And sometimes it's not really the picture that we need to interrogate or the image it's the story that there be the picture or image is being situated in and, and, and what, where, what that uh, particular image is, how it's being used to tell a story um, and towards what end. We highlighted that the image of Jesus, no image of Jesus can capture everything that Jesus is and that every image essentially is flawed, not just pictures on the wall, but in our own concepts as well which doesn't mean we don't get to encounter the real Jesus. It just means that you're not God. I mean, that's what it means, which seems obvious. Uh, and yet we sort of think we are, and we often therefore turn our conceptions into our gods. Idolatry is a constant human problem, and that's really what that is about. Even good images leave out important things. That's always the case. Our images of Jesus preach sermons, and many of our lessons and many of our sermons and the ways we form faith in our children, and all, all, all the ways in which we are encountering Jesus together and with others and bringing people to an encounter with Jesus, they rely on the potency of those images and those symbols very often, whether it's pictures on the wall or uh, in, our, in our words. We talked yesterday about how our images tend toward capturing Jesus as comfortable and familiar. He's kind of like me. Or on the other side, he's not really like me. He's different. He's transcendent. And how hard it is for a single image ever to sort of capture all of that. Again, nothing captures uh, the fullness of Jesus except Jesus and God himself. Our images of Jesus, therefore, are like mirrors, raising the question, who's reflecting whom? <laughs> you know, am I looking at Jesus in a 2 Corinthians 5 kind of way and then being transformed into the image of Jesus, or am I projecting the image that I want? And there's always a little bit of that happening, even under the best of circumstances. Uh, there's a, a mirror thing happening. And we observed that sometimes we see Jesus best through others' eyes. Uh, so... 
For those of you who weren't here yesterday, for those of you who were, you're thinking, wow, I got ripped off. I had to come yesterday for all that. Whereas we could have just, you know, ripped, whipped through this pretty fast. Um, this is, uh, I want to sort of take these lessons and apply them to a few case studies today. Jesus is somebody in particular, and he is simply that person. That's simple. But if Jesus Messiah culminates God's story with Israel, and if Jesus fulfills the person of God, and fulfills the character of God, and fulfills the priorities and values and mission of God, along with being the truly human being in the image of God, and somehow if Jesus is the key to the salvation of the cosmos and all of us, well, then that's not simple, right? There's, there's a lot, lot potentially going on there. And that's one of the reasons why in the Bible, in Christian teaching, in the history of Christian art, etc., we have so many windows uh, into the Jesus that we have a relationship with. So it's not always as straightforward um, as like, well, this one picture is a right image and this other picture is the wrong image. There are right and wrong things. There are things that are theologically wrong or theologically right. There are things that are morally wrong and morally right. I'm not implying that doesn't exist. I just want to say when we're talking about formation, and the formation of our faith, and the development of a relationship with someone, there are other ways to talk about it too. We can talk about whether something's healthy or not, and that puts a different spin on it a bit, and sometimes rescues the conversation out of those binaries. Well, is this a wrong image, you know? Uh, well, mm, no, I, well, I don't know that it's wrong, but having that particular food item every day, all day, might not be the best thing for us. You know, exercise and diet, spiritual formation, there's a lot of uh, similarity there. So, let's do a few case studies. Who here has ever seen this Jesus? Yeah. Uh, right. Or yesterday here as well, right? We saw the Solomon Jesus briefly too, but it's, it's hard to remember these things. Um, yeah, it, it's just one of the most common representations of Jesus. Uh, Solomon did this uh, in the 1930s, and then, it, and then it kind of achieved this classic status in 1940. He did it for the North Park Theological um, Seminary, which is an evangelical covenant church, which is a Swedish denomination. You know, um, it, it looks uh, pretty Nordic, actually. And what's ironic is he was told, we do, we're, we're tired of these effeminate Jesuses. To make someone masculine. And so this is, you know, this is the masculine Jesus um, uh, for Solomon. They say it's been reprinted at least half a billion times uh, in the 20th century. Um, it has inspired a lot of other images that are very similar as people are sort of finding resonances with uh, that same image. And for most of us probably, because we're sharing largely one culture or very similar cultures, there's not anything that's too terribly offensive about that. So I want to establish some historical distance and remind us of this picture from yesterday from uh, the chapel in Ravenna. Uh, think about some things that we might remember about this. There's no doubt it's Jesus. He's got the book that says, I'm the way and the truth and life right there. Uh, it's in, in Latin. But he's clean-shaven, like 
Roman soldier. He's dressed like a, a Roman military commander. He is brandishing the uh, cross like a weapon, and he's trampling on the enemies of God, which coincidentally also happened to be the enemies of the early Byzantine Empire. Um, the uh, lion and the snake, these are, these are Arians, Arianism, kind of a theological perspective in a group of churches in the fourth century. These are the enemies of the empire, and Jesus is uh, defeating them. We talked about where, where some of this comes from, out of, out of scripture and so on, uh, as a motif. Uh, but here, it's being situated in a particular story, as it always is. And when you start, can you imagine, when you start noticing some of these things, and it makes you wonder how a particular image of Jesus, as Lord and King, which he is, has been pulled out of one story, the story that we read about in the Gospels and in, in the history of Israel, and put into a, a different kind of story where he fits in the story only if he behaves in ways that are kind of uncharacteristic of how he acts back in that story that he's come from, like in the Gospels, for example. And can you believe, like if you, we were back then, the 4th and 5th century, that if I were to raise a lot of questions about this in the wrong circles... I might be under fire, even from Christians. In fact, considering you know, the power of the empire, I might be put in prison, I might even be executed. Can you imagine that? It's crazy, it's unimaginable. Just hold on to that thought of how unimaginable that is uh, for a moment. We're gonna come back to this image that has inspired uh, a number of images and uh, and, and a look at another circulation of the image that has been getting passed around um, in, um, in recent years. So here we go, right? Um, we should have kept this fifth century. It's a lot easier to, when you get the historical distance, that's safer. And then we close the distance and now we're meddling. Um, this is not just an internet meme, of course. This, uh, this is, you know, it's been, been used quite a lot in recent years. So, go ahead and talk to the person next to you. How does this image strike you? Just what is, just what's your gut reaction to this image of Jesus? If you got somebody nearby, just take 30 seconds and just give your gut reaction. Right. Uh, okay, we'll come back together here. Um, you know, I can't say, well, the problem here is that it, this is just not historically accurate. <laughs> because, you know, there would not have been a baseball cap and this Nordic, et cetera, et cetera. It's not historically accurate. Because that's also true about this one. Um, and it's true about this one that we looked at yesterday. And, believe it or not, it's even true about this one. Uh, from the chosen, you know, although there's this kind of scale, right, this spectrum of closer deliberate approximation to something that's historically and ethnically first century as according to our best guesses and whatever. But my point is, although the historical embodied Jesus is always important to bring back into the conversation, it's not the only important thing about Jesus. Uh, we talked about this yesterday. If you could take a photograph of Jesus, you would learn a lot about how Jesus looks but nothing really about what Jesus means. And this is why we go beyond 
that and why just saying, well, you just have to stick with this literal you know, picture is not, there are no neutral images of Christ, not in our hearts and not on the wall. Uh, they, so uh, it's not that simple. If it weren't the case, um, we wouldn't be reading the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew in English. We would be reading it uh, in Greek or in Aramaic, which really all of you should be doing, um, right? Uh, to kind of get, we should all be doing that. But if you think about that for a minute, how much we depend on encountering Jesus in ways that fit particular contexts. The Bible is not the same as the Quran, um, and the approach to Jesus that Christians have is different from the approach that Muslims have to the prophet. Jesus translates God. It's about the incarnation. Jesus translates God. We translate Jesus. That's a part of what goes on. Just translating the Bible has already made that commitment. Um, so it's, it's not as simple as, well, do you just get, you know, go back to the historical thing and the literal thing and that solves it. I can't say, well, the problem with that image is that there's an agenda. You know, why can't it just be plain and simple Jesus? No agenda. Because, that, again, there, there's always these, these embedded meanings, and it's important that they, they are. There's an agenda in the Good Shepherd uh, imagery of, from the catacombs of the early church. There's an agenda in Mel Gibson's uh, representation of, of Jesus. Or maybe we could do the distance again for a minute and look at this late medieval picture of a crusader who's marching off to war, and there's, you know, he's got a banner with Jesus' face and the Lamb of God emblem, and the cross is there, and it's easy to see how Jesus is being made to fit a political agenda of the 12th or 13th century that might not be the same as the agenda of the kingdom, let's say, in the Sermon on the Mount, for example. Um, it's harder to see it in my own day. We looked at this one briefly yesterday, and I, I want to clarify, this isn't actually about American politics. And it's not about MAGA, it's not about whether you voted one way or another way in a recent political election. I believe that nobody really has a monopoly on leveraging Jesus for political agendas. Whether we're talking about 6th century Byzantine emperors, 12th or 13th century crusaders, 16th century Spanish conquistadores, or perhaps even American Democrats and Republicans. Uh, this is something we, that, that is common in, in the culture. But if I look at something like this and say, well, that image is okay, because that's actually a pretty literal representation of how Jesus might have looked in death and suffering. It's fairly realistic. And also, God wants me to be um, a good citizen. And so that's, that's what this is about. Well, is that really the only argument this image is making? Um, is that the only story in play here, I want us to attend to the stories that our images are serving and ask how well those fit the stories of Jesus as we best understand them. Yeah, and sometimes you got to get outside yourself to do it. Take this flag around the world and ask other people what they think it means. And pretty quickly, 
uh, you'll see that they think a red, white, and blue Jesus isn't just arguing for good citizenship in one's own country, that there's something else going on here. And when you overlay the Jesus who is suffering on top of that as well, that adds another layer of uh, significance, that this is more like a nationalistic religion than it is like just a depiction of Jesus who's endorsing good uh, citizenship. Okay, I intentionally picked a couple of images that I think go too far, <laughs> in, in, in my opinion. I'm pretty open. I'm kind of a both-and guy, which means... I'm much, I'm very balanced, much more balanced than most people you would ever meet, right? But, um, uh, but I think sometimes we can go too far. I, th I think this image pulls Jesus out of the story in scripture and Christian belief and squeezes him into another narrative that really changes the meaning of Jesus and what he's about very much. But I realize there can be different views about that and, and I'm okay with that. I just want us to pause and ask the questions in different ways. So how do we get Jesus right? Well, it's not easy. Who was the first group of people that kept getting Jesus wrong? Right, all the disciples, right? All the people that were his best friends, all the people who hung out with him all the time and spent a lot of time with Jesus. They were getting Jesus wrong, but he is the way and the truth and the life, and I believe that he honors a kind of faithful, persistent searching uh, and relating to him. So they kept getting him wrong, but Jesus stuck with them and worked with them and corrected them. And I just want to highlight some promises that are in John's gospel about Jesus' way, truth, and life that are encouraging to me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. If you really want to do God's will, then knowing the real me is something that it ultimately is going to be accessible to you. Uh, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So if you're listening to what I say, caring about what I say, doing what I say, um, and communing with the word of God in Jesus, then real discipleship can be there, a real relationship with the real Jesus. You're my friends if you do what I command. Are you doing what I'm asking? Are you attending to that? Uh, then you really you know, are my disciple and my friend. Now, not everybody was on board with that. There's this famous episode in John at the end of chapter 6 with a bunch of disciples who just want to leave Jesus because they don't like what he's talking about or what he represents. And he talks to his close disciples and says, you want to leave too? And Peter says, wait, what he wants to say is something like, kind of. Uh, you know, we don't get it either. We don't understand. But where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Uh, I say that, he probably wanted to say kind of, because it's clear from the stories that they still really don't understand Jesus very well for a long time. But all of these promises are focusing on a person's intent, a person's desire to please God, to seek what's good and right, and how that in a discipleship economy, God honors that by disclosing truth about himself in Christ. So it's that dogged, persistent, abiding in Jesus, coming back to Jesus, even when it means having your understandings and images of Jesus unmade and remade over and over again along the journey. That's the disciples' journey. And I think we can trust the Lord to give us some good instincts in that journey when we keep working on them over time and letting him correct us along the way. Again, that kind of formation is a process. 
it can't be reduced as like an ethical dilemma, which one of these things was right or wrong. It's about interrelating with a person and learning that person better over time in life. One of the resources for that is the experience of uh, Christians through the centuries. And things that we've learned from our little gallery tour yesterday, I think, can help with the matter of getting Jesus right. And I want to highlight some things there. The importance of coming back to the church's testimony about Jesus over and over again, returning to scripture, returning to Christian belief. Uh, Scripture is not Jesus. Doctrine is not Jesus. Jesus is a person. But scripture and doctrine are meant to help us stay focused on the real Jesus. So this is an important practice, actually, is just coming back to the basics all the time. And not just with young children, but youth and adults and rehearsing the basics of Christian belief. Um, There have been times in recent years where some of you might have thought, boy, it seems like some of our Christian brothers and sisters have forgotten the basics of what we believe and committed to. But if, if we haven't been talking about those and rehearsing those repeatedly, learning the story, rehearsing the story of Jesus. And I want to make a a critical point here. It's kind of a footnote point, but it's an important point. When I say return to the scripture of Christian teaching, return to the the Jesus of scripture, Jesus Jesus in scripture is not equivalent to Jesus in the gospels. Um, The gospels are very engaging because of their narrative and because of the engaging dialogues that happen there. They're critically important to uh, understanding Jesus. I mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the specific books. But the fact that there are four of them should be like a neon warning sign against um, reducing Jesus to one story or one set of stories, even in Scripture. The early Christians did not mean for you to ever think you can just get Jesus from a gospel narrative in the text. They didn't do it that way, and uh, we can't either. The canon holds together. Jesus discloses God, and much of who God is is seen in the Old Testament. Parts of the New Testament were written well before the Gospels, and the Gospels' place in the canon presumes that you'd be reading those other parts and sort of takes for granted the way she would be encountering Christ in those other places. Hebrews is an encounter with Jesus. 1 Corinthians is an encounter with Jesus. 1 John is an encounter with Jesus. So if I think that getting back to the real Jesus means strictly going back to a Gospel genre, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, rather than, say, going to 2 Corinthians or going to the book of Acts. Uh, I don't really understand how the Bible works or what the early church was doing um, in, uh, in bringing it to us. Um, so we keep coming back to the Gospels, yes, but we keep coming back to the whole testimony as well, which is really important. Uh, and then we ask the kind of questions that we talked about last time. Uh, how does this image interpret scripture? What sermon does this image preach? We'll list these questions again here in a minute. What story is it helping to tell? How does this picture affirm my sense of who Jesus is? How does it challenge my sense of who Jesus is? What is true about the image that this picture evokes? What are the pitfalls here? 
What are the things missing? What are the blind spots? There are always going to be some. And then how would other people see this? And in order to address that question, you've got to have the other people. You've got to be talking to, listening to, in relationship with other people in thinking about who Jesus is. So let's look at a common theme that we find uh, based on an episode in Jesus' life, the flight into Egypt from Matthew 2. And I'm going to show you a few images. We could just consider them briefly, ponder them in turn. They're from different periods and different artists. This is obviously a much more recent one from 2016, and you may have uh, seen it circulating. And if we bring some of these questions into focus about this 2016 image and think about the things I'm inviting us to, uh, to ponder. Let's just skip to that last one. How would others see this? Why, there are other people here. How about you ask one of them? Talk to somebody next to you. How, how does this image strike you? It's clearly meant to be Jesus, right? There's a baby Jesus, and yet... So you don't have to answer all those questions together, but just that last question um, in light of what we've been discussing. Just talk to, the, talk to your neighbor. How does this image strike you? How do you see it? So just, I'm just curious, how many people have seen this image before? There are several, but not, certainly not everybody. Um, you know, there's no doubt that it's, preaching a sermon, right, and responding in a particular way to contemporary circumstances about, um, about people who don't have a home and are trying to find a place. Uh, and is that the sort of person and journey and story that Jesus would identify with? And if so, how? Then these are the questions I'd like us to ask about it rather than... Um, well, you know, rather than asking which American political party does this, you know, or which American agenda does this, I'd like us to ask these kinds of questions about these images and, and reflect on it a little differently. Is it possible for us to see how different Christians in our churches are going to see this differently based on the kinds of stories that are being told around and with the image? Uh, and someone might even possibly reject it as, well, that's not historical. Uh, again, the baseball cap, that's a dead giveaway. Uh, but the disagreements in our churches may have more to do with the story that people are imagining for the image and what story it's serving. And I think we could ask some of these questions together and study together and might found, find more common ground in the true Christ. I'd like in just the next few minutes to pick up another image that's become a very potent one in recent years, the image of Jesus as a welcoming host. It's a really important image, especially lately. And, of course, you've got you know, this famous uh, view of uh, da Vinci's Last Supper. That's one way of thinking about it. Obviously, this is a biblical theme, and it shows up in a lot of different ways. I mean, there's a Syriac manuscript which pictures the Last Supper differently than da Vinci would. Uh, but Jesus is at meals often. Jesus welcomes people. He welcomes the lame and the blind and prostitutes and sinners. He, um, 
is, come if you're weary and heavy laden and I'll, I'll give you rest. Uh, there are a number of images in the, the gallery that try to get us to think about this. This is a famous one from the 15th century, uh, riffing off Genesis, uh, where Abraham is being hospitable to God, who is three people, or, you know, it's a very mysterious story, right? But many Christians saw that as a, a, a symbol of the Trinity, and the guy in the middle is meant to be Jesus, but it's a, wel it's a table that welcomes you to come in and sit down as well. But that whole motif of hospitality in Scripture... Uh, this, uh, this may not resonate with you as much as some of you, at least, as much as the Rublev Trinity. Um, but Stephen Sawyer is actually pretty popular, and a lot of people are uh, using his art. Uh, some of you may prefer Da Vinci's Last Supper. But I, I, I just show this partly because it's interesting. You think about, you know, you'd ask those questions again. I'm encouraging you to do that. Uh, and I'm not trying to be an art snob, and, you know, I from Oildale. Um, uh, my grandma lived behind Merle Haggard's maw. You know, I can't pull off culture snob very long in a sustainable way. Um, I, I'm, I'm interested in a picture like that too. Although personally I like this one uh, from Barbados uh, where this is on the side of a house and there you've got, you know, Jesus obviously everybody's, kind, you know, hip and uh, Caribbean, all of his disciples. It's interesting and a lot of fun. Uh, and this one as well from the Sudan, uh, which is, uh, was just an anonymous muralist who painted this in an outdoor area. So why is this image of uh, Jesus as a welcoming host become so impactful? Well, uh, you might say, Jeff, have you seen the news? <laughs> There's a lot of hostility out there. There's a lot of inhospitality, uh, inhospitality out there. Inhospitable, inhospitability. Let's move on. Um, <laughs> and religion can definitely be exclusive or seem exclusive, and Jesus is welcoming people. So this image challenges us in important ways and reminds us of things we might have forgotten. It can interpret scripture rightly. It can preach a good sermon, one that we need right now. Uh, it's a great image, obviously, right? And yet we start asking these questions, and we, you know, is this a complete picture? No. Uh, in history, one image or concept of Jesus can be a very important corrective to some of our idolatries. But when that one crucial image turns into your total narrative, then that's just slipping into another idolatry, which we're actually experts at doing. Uh, especially as Protestants and Americans, uh, we see things that need fixing, and then we say, I need to fix that, and so our whole program becomes about fixing that one thing. And we even go found a new church that will specialize in that one thing, right? Um, and, and, and I'm reminded of all of that, what we learn in Scripture about Christ. If your Jesus only makes people feel comfortable when they meet him, if that's the only capacity your Jesus has, is that the real Jesus? Is that the full Jesus? No. If Jesus, you know, if my Jesus can only affirm who a person is, what they are, what they're doing, and that's all Jesus can do, are there any pitfalls to that? Is there anything missing? Are there no discipleship expectations, no challenges, no place for growth? Many of these things are sort of contradictory. We want to reform, for example, I would like to see us 
be reformed into being more hospitable people, which means from time to time I need to see Jesus being comfortable and hospitable. And from time to time I need to see Jesus going, psh, 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 you know, slapping me across the face and saying, you should be more hospitable. You should change. Um, and I need kind of both of those in order for either one of these really to work. Jesus only as my BFF misses the Jesus as the reformer who wants to change things. Jesus only as the person who welcomes everything misses the Jesus who exposes sin, social sin, but also personal sin. And they're always both in play. Or the Jesus who upholds high standards of discipleship and ethics. So when I go all in on one image, not just in art hanging on the wall, which most of us come from churches that are pretty aniconic. We don't have a lot of images anyway, probably, in our churches. Uh, maybe more at home. But in the sermons that I'm preaching, in the logos on our uh, publications, and what I'm saying at the Lord's table, and everywhere, it's just this one image. And you have people balking at that. It's not necessarily the case that they're just inhospitable people. I hate Jesus as a hospi hospitable host. Um, it may be the case that they're attuned to other aspects of Jesus that are also authentic and that their instincts are raising alarms about a narrow menu. And what I'm praying is that we can be patient enough with each other to help us discern deeper understandings of the Lord together. So why there are different things that we can do just to reflect like we are doing, to audit our imagery, kind of pay attention to the images of our sermons and our songs and our, our artwork and ask questions about, um, about what's missing. Uh, we can get acquainted with different ways of picturing Jesus like we've done the last couple of days. Um, and there are lots of resources about that in books and online. You can send me an email and I'll send you lists of things that might be helpful but we can also do this in community and with others, which I think I find to be really helpful um, to um, sort of enrich the imagery by using different pictures in our worship, in our, in our preaching, uh, in the songs that we're choosing, images in our home, and then uh, dealing with the conflict that ensues, <laughs> or the, the differences of opinion, and embrace some of that. But I was in a small group that was on the verge of totally breaking up because of a conflict that at its root was about Jesus. Is it Bruce Marciano of the Visual Bible Matthew? Half the group thought so. Or is it more like the Jesus of the Visual Bible John, who's thoughtful and pensive and not such a jovial guy to hang around? The other half of the group thought that. And, all, and a lot of our differences of opinion were about those different understandings of Jesus until we stepped back and said, we have different understandings of Jesus. And we looked at the images and we talked about these things. And, and then some of those things became a joke and the, a, a fuller expression of Christ came out of that by God's, uh, God's grace because we embraced the differences of opinion and uh, the conflict. And that requires paying special attention to outside voices. Finally, just real quickly, another kind of practical thing to do is to spend, is to use images, actual images, art, graphic images for contemplation. And here I'm just stealing from my colleague and friend Dan McGregor who talks about Visio Divina where you take an image like this one we looked at yesterday and 
like you would do Lexio Divina or just meditate in a kind of disciplined, thoughtful way on a passage of scripture, you do that on an image. And you can do it together. You can do it with families. You can do it uh, in Bible classes. You can do it in small groups. Uh, I know people who have done something like this, even in a corporate worship setting. Well, that, that's a bit harder. But this gets you really to slow down and look at something, and especially when you're with other people, to hear from them different things about what's going on and what this means. And you can ask those questions, that put a menu of questions, uh, if you like. But you can also just spend time with the image in this disciplined way to see what God might be showing you in it and kind of change up the imagery that you do that with um, as you contemplate. Uh, so for followers of Jesus, our images and conceptions of the Lord are basic. And as I said yesterday, they can distract us. They can make it harder for us to see other important things. They can become idols. They can reinforce us in ways that are not healthy. But they can also release our imaginations to be more committed disciples, to draw closer to Christ, to grow, and to learn who Jesus is more fully. And these are just a few resources. If you want more stuff, send me an email. I steal lists from other people. I'm happy to you know, give them to you. But let's finish up this morning um, in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful that you've called us together and given us this moment. It's a luxury to sit here in peace in a beautiful place and, uh, and, and, and to ponder you and to seek the, your face in Jesus. Thank you for that gift. We pray, Father, that you would reveal Jesus to our hearts. Only you can do that fully. And we ask, Father, that you would lead us ever more fully into who Jesus is um, by your grace. Please help us to find ways to do that together and to capture uh, the vision that you have for us as the body of Christ so that we can represent these things in the world for your glory and to bless other people. We ask in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.